Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. All right, so we began the series last week. Um, if you missed it, I really encourage you to get online and catch up because today in many ways is a follow-on. Um, I will bring you up to speed. The series is called Elect Exiles. And we get this from verse 1. Verse 1 reads as follows, just the first little bit there. To those who are elect exiles. So we said that Peter is the obvious author. You know, the Apostle Peter has written this letter and he's writing to this particular audience. To those who are elect exiles. And those two words really capture the theme of the entire letter. He's writing to people who are elect, and he's writing to people who are exiles. Those two words describe our relationship to God, who we are in relation to God, and who we are in relation to the world. We are God's elect, and we are God's exiles as we relate to the world. And these are our dual identities. Another way you could argue it, Paul speaks of this in Philippians, that we are dual citizens, citizens of heaven and citizens on earth. And so these two terms, elect exiles, are very rich terms. They are rich terms that once applied specifically to the nation of Israel. We will remember that God chose or elected Israel under the old covenant to be his nation, his people. And sadly, because of their disobedience, they broke covenant with God. And then God sent them into exile. And so that's the background for Peter's use of these two Old Testament words and by using them he's affirming the Christian identity and we said that one of the most mind-blowing things is that he's applying these terms to a predominantly Gentile church. These terms that are rich Old Testament specifically used for Israel he's now applying them to the church because the church is now made up of both Jew and Gentile. And so we see this word in the beginning, but then we also spoke a little bit about the strange reference at the end of his letter. So in the beginning, in his opening greeting, and then at the end, in his kind of cheers greeting, in chapter 5, verse 13, we read this. It says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And you might, when you first read that, think, oh, what on earth is this all about? Actually, it's linking to the opening verse because when he says she, who is at Babylon, he's referring to himself and the church in Rome. Peter is writing from Rome and he sees himself together with the church as exiles. In Rome, just like Israel were exiles in Babylon, so he sees himself now, the believers in Rome are kind of like in Babylon. Babylon was used throughout the New Testament as code for being in exile. But notice he's not just saying we're in exile. Look what he says, who is likewise what? Chosen. That word elect again. Now I know some people are uncomfortable. We spoke a bit about this last week, about this word Elect, But it's very clear that it's a Bible word. The word exile and elect are used throughout the scriptures. We said that this is not a man-made doctrine. This is a God-designed Bible truth that actually goes all the way back beyond the people of Israel. For example, the election of Abraham. 
Abraham was called by God and no other of the Chaldeans were called. It was Abraham who was a pagan worshipper that God plucked him out of his paganism. God chose him. God set his love on Abraham. Was there anything in Abraham that deserved it? No. He was a pagan idol worshipper and God chose him from among the Chaldeans. We could think of the election of Isaac. Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. That was quite a remarkable story in Genesis. How Ishmael was the son of the flesh, but Isaac was the son of the promise, and he was chosen. Although they both had the blood of Abraham, it was not according to the flesh that the children of God had decided, but it's according to the children of promise. We could think of the election of Jacob, not Esau. That Hot, riveting verse in Romans 9 where it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You think, wow, is that a quote from scripture? Yes, it is. We could think of the election of the nation of Israel and not Egypt. It was Israel that he saved and drew out of Egypt, not the other nations. We could think of even the election of Peter himself who's writing this letter and not Judas. And we could go on and we could go on. Jesus himself spoke of election. One example in Matthew 24 verse 31. Jesus says of his father. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. In other words from all over the world. The elect who are scattered exiles. They will be gathered from all over the world. From one end of heaven to the other. Jesus spoke of this often. The Apostle Paul spoke of election often. In Titus 1 verse 1, just one example, there are many. Paul, he says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul says he's giving himself as an outpouring of an offering. He's giving himself for the sake of God's chosen people. Who are now those who are in Christ. The Apostle John also speaks often on the subject. One example, Revelation 13 verse 8. All on earth will worship it. Referencing the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There is a book. That has been written before any of us were born. Before the worlds began. And there were names written in it. The Apostle John says. And so we can see. And there's many other verses. We can see that the Apostle Peter is not alone in this teaching. So let's read again. 1 Peter 1. 1 through 5. Because we're going to go a little further today than what we did last week. Not a lot further, but a little further. Here we go. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we've spent most of our time on verse 1 and 2, and I want to start again at verse 2, because we didn't unpack it. In verse 2, Peter uses three phrases, three Trinitarian phrases. You would have noticed he speaks of the Father, of the Spirit, and of the Son. He uses these three Trinitarian phrases to describe the grounds of election. Upon what grounds does election actually happen? How does it work? And he's going to describe the reason for their status as elect exiles. And so he introduces to us these three frameworks. We're going to ask who is doing this. We're going to see how it happens. And we're going to see why it happens. The who, the how, the why. Here we go. Number one, the who. Who decides that we will be elect exiles? Now, Peter is writing this as an encouragement. He's not writing this to divide the church. This isn't a doctrine to be divided over. This is a doctrine to unite the church. He's writing this to a persecuted people. That's why they're exiles in Rome, because persecution's about to break out, and he wants to strengthen their identity. And so who decides that we will be elect exiles? Apostle Peter, please tell us. And he does. In verse 2, he says, It's according to... The foreknowledge of God the Father. It is God the Father who decides before the foundations of the world. Now the term foreknowledge is a unique and technical term. And so I want to first tell us what it doesn't mean. And then tell us what I think it does mean. To be Chosen by the foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. To be chosen by the foreknowledge of God does not mean that God at some point in the past looked down the corridors of history, looked down the corridors of time, and saw what you would decide about Jesus. And He saw if you had faith or if you didn't have faith. And so if down the corridors of time he sees that you had faith, then he would elect you. That's one view. This view relegates God to a responder. He sees what you will choose and then he responds to And says, I will elect you. On the basis of your faith, I will elect you. And so this is known as conditional. Conditional election. God will elect you on the condition that you have faith. And this is a view within Christianity. We are not now talking about a view outside of Christianity. This is a view held by Christians. And we have people in our church who believe this. The problem, however, is that that is not how the word foreknowledge is used in the Bible, in particular in this context. The word foreknowledge is a technical word 
that doesn't refer only to what God sees ahead of time. Because you could just use the word knowledge, right? God knows all things. Of course he knows what every decision will be. Psalm 139 says, before a word is even on your tongue, he knows it all together. He knows when you rise and when you sit. God knows all things. It's called the omniscience of God. And so of course God knows all things. And included in that is your decision. So what then is foreknowledge? If knowledge is knowing all things, then what is foreknowledge? Well, foreknowledge is not just forward knowing, but it's forward loving. Foreknowledge has people in view, not actions in view. Let me show you how this works. Foreknowledge is a love word, not an information word. Yes, obviously it includes that. J.R. Packer, the great theologian, he says to be foreknown by God is to be foreloved by God. Jesus himself uses this word know or knowledge in this way. For example, in John 10 verse 14 and 15, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. What does that mean? Does, he, does that mean he knows information about them? He knows how they're going to act and how they're going to behave. Well, of course he knows that. That's obvious, but that's not what he's saying, right? He says, I know them. There's this personal relationship with them. I know that my own, and, and my own know me, he says, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We, we know just from that that this is a different kind of knowing. This is a more intimate kind of knowing. Another reference would be Genesis 4 verse 1. We don't have time to look there. But in Genesis 4 verse 1 it says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Wow. I didn't know that's how it worked. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. What, what, what's this knowing? It's personal. It's intimate. This is how the Bible uses this word. It's not just information. It's not like high five Eve and then she's pregnant. No, it's covenant. He knew her. It's a covenant term. And so when it's referencing God as the subject and people as the object, it's a rich term. It's a technical term that's not just for knowing, but for loving. Jesus uses it in another way, in a less nice way. Look at this in Matthew 7 verse 21. He says, then I will declare to them, speaking of the hypocrites, I never, what? Knew you. I never knew you. Does that mean he, he, he didn't know anything about them? Does that mean that he, he never knew any information? No, it's not. It's, it's, I, I, there was no covenant between us. There's no covenant relationship. I never knew you. Depart from me. And so Peter, you, know, you might think, well, we've gone to Jesus and we can go to other places in the Bible. But Peter, even in, in his own letter, uses the same word here in chapter 1, verse 20. And so this clarifies for us, Peter, what do you mean by the word foreknow? Where he says this, he, Jesus, speaking of Christ, was what? Was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Wow. 
Does that mean God the Father just knew about this guy called Jesus? No. He was foreknown in the sense there was a covenant relationship. And so church, when the Bible speaks about God's foreknowledge in regards to people, it's much more than just knowing actions. It means a personal relationship of love and grace towards them. And so we could summarize. We could say, yes, God knows everything, but God doesn't foreknow everyone. Because not everyone will be saved. We know that. Otherwise, we've got to get rid of the doctrine of hell. But we know that there is such a thing, that there will be those who will suffer eternal hell because of their sin. Because they're of their sin. But God has chosen to foreknow multitudes. In his mercy, he didn't have to. He wasn't compelled to. But in his mercy, he has chosen to foreknow multitudes from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the Bible tells us this in Romans 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, there's the word again, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he called he also justified. And those whom he justified he also glorified. Please notice the term to those. It's not what he foreknew. It's those he foreknew. It's people. It's a covenant Term. Now I know this is, this is deep end, higher grade theology, but we are people of the Bible and we are preaching through a book of the Bible and we've got to live with the Bible. If you're a believer, you've got to live with God's word. And so I want to encourage you with this. We need to view this as Peter is viewing it. And that is as to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our identity as believers. And yes, we may have questions and that's okay. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to, to, to think, well, this is, whoa, this is way beyond me. This is way above me. It's okay. We're dealing with God, people. We have got finite minds. I can't even remember what I had for lunch a week ago. How are we going to wrap our heads around the knowledge of God? And so it's okay. If anything... Let's just go back to the corridors of history thing. If anything, if God saw anything down the corridors of time, let me tell you what he saw. When he looked down the corridors of time, what he saw was that you would never choose him if left to yourself. If God just left you to your own desires, the Bible tells us that we like sheep have gone astray. That we are slaves to sin. That we are dead in our trespasses. And so there is a real problem with fallen man. And if God didn't do something, no one would be saved. And so when God does look down the corridors of time because that's his knowledge, what does he see? He sees a, a, a world that is not ever going to choose him. Because they love the darkness, John 3 says that they loved the darkness. 
And so God acts with his foreknowledge and he chooses to save people. John 6, Jesus says this in John 6 verse 44. No one can come to me. There it is. Can anyone come? No, it's you morally, this is morally, morally, spiritually speaking, you are incapable apart from grace. No one can come to me. Here it is. Unless who? The father who sent me draws him. And so if anyone is ever going to be saved, God would need to draw them. God needs to give spiritual life. That's what happens when we believe. When you believe, when you believe and repent and believe, you're doing that. It's not God God causing you to do it, but He's putting you the desire. He's put that desire in you. He opens your eyes to the wonder of the gospel. And you believe. John 6 verse 63. It says, it's the spirit who gives life. Where do we get spiritual life from? It's the Holy Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so that brings us to our second point. Who is doing this? It's the Father who draws. And how does it happen? How? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. How do the elect become Christians? Well, they become Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at this, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Or you could translate and say, and through the sanctification of the Spirit. The word sanctification here, guys, is being used as a, again, it's a technical term, not only for our growth in Christ-likeness, but the starting point of our Christ-likeness. It means to be set apart. Let me ask you a question. When you first became a believer, how did it happen? And like I said last week, you might describe the front-end story. You know, this is the story of how it happened from my perspective, but what we are looking at here is the behind-the-scenes story. For me, I was a 16-year-old brat who went on a surf trip to Jeffreys Bay. And the only reason I went there was because there was going to be surf. And it was a Christian surfers weekend. And I thought I could leverage it for my own advantage. And that night, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and he called me. Because I wasn't looking for him. No, the good shepherd came looking for me. And that's how we become Christians. Your testimony is, I gave my life to the Lord. And that's true, you did. You did, you chose him. But why? Because he chose you first. He called you. And when you become a believer, what happens to you before you have faith is you get regenerated. It's called being born again. We're not, we're not, we don't have faith and then are born again. That would make no sense. The reason you are born again is in order for you to have faith. And so this is what he says. He says that we are saved, elected by the foreknowledge of God, and how it's working is through the sanctification of the Spirit. In verse 3, he double clicks on what he means. Have a look at this, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, the same words, according to... How? Peter, how? According to his great mercy. Okay, we get that. Tick, foreknowledge, mercy. How? 
He has caused us to what? To be born again to a living hope. You, you thought you were doing it. And you know what? That's okay. You think, think that for the rest of your life. That's fine. But why are you born again? Well, the Bible tells us he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection purchased this for you. He bought it for you. That you would be born again. And again, the reason is given. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born. The, the language here should obviously refer us to the first time you were born. Do you remember that? I don't know about you, but when I was first born, I was born very close to my mom. Who's here today? Where are you? There you are. But I don't remember that. And did I have a role to play? No, Zippo, zero. How much of a role did I play in being born the first time? Well, exactly. How much of a role did you have to play being born again? That's the point of the analogy. No role. It happens to us by the Spirit. Salvation for the elect is a miracle of grace. We don't regenerate our own hearts. That's humanism. We don't turn over a new leaf. That's moralism. No, we are regenerated by the Spirit of God who awakens our dead hearts with resurrection life. It's the Spirit who gives life. Faith is important. But is faith your gift to God or God's gift to you? And if faith is your gift to God, then how on earth can you thank God for faith? The only way you can thank God for your faith, the fact that you believe, is because He gave it to you. It's the gift of grace. And so this means that my conversion didn't start with me. I was the responder, and He was the initiator. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what it means. Our final point, the why. Why are we then called to be elect exiles? Well, the answer is for obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Not for arrogance, not for pride, not for debate. Why? Why, Peter, are you telling us about this truth? Why? I mean, why do I have to preach this, Peter? Trying to build a church here. I'm going to talk about these controversial issues. Well, he tells us why. Because if we understand our identity, it produces humility, not arrogance. That's the last thing it should produce. Like, wow, I've been foreloved from before the foundations of the world. I don't deserve that. It's ridiculous. I know what I deserve. I don't deserve this kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. Some commentators say that this could be 
on the basis of the obedience of Jesus Christ. And that would be true too. It's his obedience that actually purchased our salvation. So either way, it's true. And the sprinkling of his blood, which is again an Old Testament reference to the Exodus 24 moment where the people of Israel are drawn before Moses and he sprinkles the blood of the covenant of them. It's a picture of the moment we enter into covenant. No doubt the new covenant in the blood of Jesus being sprinkled on us. And the purpose, the purpose, the why, why is this all important is because of our obedience to Jesus. Being made in his likeness. Becoming more like Jesus. And that's what the rest of the chapter is going to be about. We'll go to there in the weeks to come. So here's how I want to wrap this up for us. What is Peter's goal in teaching exiles about election? And you can ask that of me this morning too. What is Greg's goal in teaching exiles about election? We could have gone elsewhere, right? We could have gone, okay guys, we're just going to skip down to verse 5. Let's just leave out verses 2 and 3. But we don't do that. What's Peter's goal in teaching exiles about election? Firstly, joyful praise. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is overflowing with praise. Peter is... He doesn't see this as a controversial doctrine at all. We do. Peter is praising God for his sovereignty and salvation. Peter is saying, blessed be God. This is an incredible plan. From before the foundation of the world, praise be to God. Peter is bursting with praise. According to his great mercy. In other words, God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory when he is the author of our faith. If we are the authors of our faith, if we are the ultimate, critical, decisive change, if God elects us on the basis of us coming to faith, then we have something to boast in. But if he is the author of our faith, then he gets all the glory. And it strips us of pride. And in its place puts in humility that we are born again to a living hope. A living hope. Christ is raised and we have a living hope that no matter what I go through, even if I die, I live. He's writing to these people who are about to be burnt alive. Do you know that under Nero, this is the time of Nero's rule and reign, Nero would take tar and he would take Christians and put them on a pole and he would cover them in tar and he would light them. And he would line, them, line the streets with them. Now you want to tell me, how are you going to get through that? Exiles? I'll tell you how. You're not just an exile, you're an elect exile. And you've been born again to a living hope that even though I die, I live. I have hope. I belong to Him. Even if I suffer, I belong to Him. 
There's a comforting assurance. He ends not only with joyful praise, but verse 4 and 5, comforting assurance. Look at this. He says, to, born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, church, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We have an eternal inheritance. The reference here was no doubt to the inheritance promised to the people of Israel. And what did they do with their inheritance? Well, it perished. And it faded. And it was defiled by their disobedience. Their earthly inheritance was lost. But Peter is saying, don't worry, both Jew and Gentile together in Christ will have an eternal inheritance. Imagine, imagine if our inheritance was fading and we had to keep it. No, no, this eternal inheritance, this, this promise of eternity with God is undefiled, imperishable. And it will never lose its appeal. You know, if something's fading, it's, it's losing its appeal. Imagine eating birthday cake. You know, eating it on the day of your birthday is great, right? And you can have some in, at the party, and then maybe a little bit later, you can have some more. And then maybe before bed, you can have some more, if you're me. But imagine having it the next day for breakfast, lunch, supper... And then the next day for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Obviously, it's a big cake. And then the next day for breakfast, lunch, and supper. What's going to happen? It's going to lose its appeal, right? It's going to fade, and it's going to be defiled, and eventually you're going to hate the cake. You may even puke on it. It's going to be terrible. But not our inheritance. It'll never fade. It'll never lose its appeal. Because God is keeping it. And not only God is God keeping our inheritance, but God is keeping us for the inheritance. Do you see that? Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. The faith that God produced in you, he's now protecting, keeping. I mean, this might land on us. You know, we're going to go home in our nice cars to our nice homes and Eat a nice meal. But, but landing on the first century hearers who are about to be persecuted by Nero, this is a great comfort. And yes, we have our struggles and we have our problems and there are struggles and there are issues in our world. And, 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 and if they aren't in your life right now, they will come. Trials and troubles will come. But here's what God is saying. The same God who keeps our inheritance safe in heaven is the same God who keeps his children secure on earth. He's going to guard us. And so exiles, fellow exiles, God hasn't forgotten us. We will be marginalized. We will be ostracized. But we are his people. I close with this, John 10. The music team can come up. John 10, verse 27, 28. Jesus says this. My sheep... Who's his sheep? The elect, not the goats, my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. It's the call of the Spirit. 
My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. When, we, when you're covered in tar, not that this will happen, Lord willing, and they put that flame to your body, this is a verse that you are holding on to. This is the verse that sustains you. That I've been born again to a living hope. And he's keeping my inheritance. And not only is he keeping my inheritance, he's keeping me. Let this be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would help us to understand the depths of your word. You say your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. And tonight we, I mean today we've encountered that in a very real way. But we thank you that this is your word, not ours. This isn't man's word. This is your word, and we will, we will think it through. We will wrestle with it. But we also want to delight in it, that this has been written as a, a song of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, because of his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. And so, Lord, we want to thank you for our salvation. We had no part in our physical birth, and we had no part in our spiritual birth. It was all of grace. All of grace. And for that we give you all the glory. We praise you, Father. We didn't deserve it. We still don't deserve it. And so we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for the amazing Trinitarian promise we have here. That the Father and the Spirit and the Son are working together to keep us. And the work that they started, they will finish. This is our hope. Our hope is not in my strength or my wisdom or my ability. Our hope is in God who keeps us. And so Holy Spirit, work this word into our hearts and may it strengthen us and may it comfort us for the journey ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.